0: Welcome back to the EFM Podcast, where we seek to create missional conversations to equip the local church for a global impact. We're glad you're with us today. I'm your host, Tom Tyndale. Welcome back to the EFM Podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Michael Mason. He is the Director of Intercultural Studies at Pinview Bible Institute. We had a great conversation last time on the life and the nature of prayer, among other things. If you haven't heard it, you really should go back and listen to it. And we're going to pick up that conversation today. Now, today we're going to be talking about the call. We've picked up a little bit about that on the past, and we've talked about how the Scripture gives a general call, and that is sufficient. But there's also a sense in which people receive a clear sense, a specific, a personal, this is for you style of call. Now sometimes these people have the call, that sense of that personal, subjective, specific call, and so they come to Bible College with that. Now sometimes they're open to the call, they haven't got it yet, but they come to Bible College and there they they get that idea of a personal, I'm calling you to foreign service. Now We try to foster this uh, with EFM by encouraging people to lean into the call and to help alleviate financial burdens. We've given away lots of scholarships uh, to to encourage the pursuit of the call. But one thing that we've seen often is that after people have received the vision, they receive the call, life happens. They just fall off the wagon. Uh, Situations change. And I know there are a lot of graduates from all of the Bible colleges that have a missions degree. And right now in their life, missions, foreign service is the furthest thing in their life. And that's a really big burden in my heart and life. And I've seen this happen way too many times, more times than I can count. So, Brother Mason, talk to us about that. Why do people fall off the wagon And how can local churches help encourage and solidify the sense of mission that you've been appointed by God to fulfill a work?
1: Well, I would say there's a lot of reasons for this happening, and I think some of the biggest reasons are materialism. We obviously live in a materialistic age in a materialistic country. And it's very, very easy for young people to start getting big jobs, making money. They get into debt that they can't get out of. And so materialistic reasons, I believe, is probably one of the top reasons that I have seen. And I've talked with lots of young people. I've talked with not young people even. I've talked with some people even recently in the last six months to a year that have had calls and have calls and they say, yeah, I'm going to go. You know, but I'm I'm trying to get this in line, get this in order, get this in order. And what I have to say about this is any kind of pretext is disobedience. And partial obedience is disobedience. So, in other words, if you have a call somewhere to the field and you're still quote unquote, well, I'm serving the Lord of ministry at my local church. Well, I'm happy that you're serving in local in your local church, but your partial obedience not wanting to obey, to go to the field, is complete disobedience to God, and we as a church have to pick up on that. I believe pastors have to pick up on that, and they have to help us out. I think as a pastor, you've got to get talking to those that you know have calls, and you've got to look at them and say, look, you can't be hanging out in my church. I love you on my bus ministry. I love you helping out, but we have got to start pushing them out, And I know there's only so much pastors can do. There's only so much I can do as a missions director. I make an attempt. I tell my students, I said, I will get on you. I will stay on your case. I will call you. I will text you until you block me. You will hate me by the time it's said and done, but I'm not going to give up. Why? Because I sat and I heard what you said. God has called me here. I have emails to prove it. I have texts to prove it. And so guess what? I'm not going to let you go. Why? That's a part of my responsibility, I believe, as a leader, to try to bring this up to them and remind them, look, you're responsible to be obedient.
0: Brother, that is great. And I think that kind of accountability is missing in so many places in the church. And I have tried many times to remind people of their call uh, to say, hey, I, I I think God's had you on a mission. What happened? I haven't maybe been as active as you have, but I think that's great. And I want to encourage pastors and fellow believers to hold people accountable and to say, you really shouldn't be satisfied with disobedience. This is an issue that needs to be dealt with.
1: Interestingly, I had a, I had one of my students just not terribly long ago, it was within the last six months, come to me personally and tell me, will you please, please hold me accountable to my call? I said, are you sure? Which I'd already told them I would. And, and she says, yes, please. And I said, absolutely, I will. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire because this is what God has called you to. So that's exciting.
0: Now, you mentioned that materialism is a big deal, and boy, it sure is. And along with that, debt is a big one. And I really want to challenge our listeners to grab this with both hands and get a hold on it. In the past, EFM has offered a weekend seminar on how to prepare to engage with the global gospel. And one of the major sections of that seminar is to make sure that people get on a budget and stay on a budget. Now, that might not sound very practical or missional, but debt has enslaved so many of God's people who just can't go because they've got to pay off a debt. Well, you can't do much if you are a slave to the lender.
1: Absolutely.
0: Now, you mentioned pastors, and I really want to lean into this. I am in complete agreement with you that pastors are the ones who are there to equip the church for ministry, they should be looking for and equipping and discipling people to intentionally, specifically, deliberately reach into the global context with the gospel. Now, as a former pastor, I know very, very well the tension between trying to get something going in the local church, the local community, and then when you look at the greater effort, there is a tension because it's, it's hard to invest in the greater effort when you're concerned with the local effort. So we want to try to resolve some of that tension. That's part of the purpose of this podcast. How do you reach the global without minimizing the local impact?
1: I think sometimes we have, we, you know, we can talk about the excluded middle. So you have to have one or the other. You know, you have to either just focus on the local or just focus. On, I, don't, I think we can have both and. The both and aspect of this says, I am going to focus on local ministry. But the global impact, yay, of the local church, we talked about this earlier, is huge. And especially because God, I believe, is on purpose intentionally sending the world to our local churches here in the U.S. We are actually receiving in the U.S. a pile of global missionaries from around the world coming to the United States to be missionaries. That is, that is stunning, and yet it's happening. Missiologically, it's taking place right now where literally kind of the seesaw is flipping the other direction um, where Nigeria is sending missionaries here, you know, South Korea is sending missionaries here, India is sending missionaries here to the U.S. And this is happening as we speak. We look, okay, so we have to, I believe, we have to have a both hand. And so for a smaller church, I believe, first of all, and I, I have a statement that I, I, I make very often, knowledge creates vision, vision, vision creates action. And of course, we know without vision, people perish according to scripture. So if they don't have the knowledge of the need, they're not going to have vision. And if they don't have vision, then they're not. there's no call to action. And so we have to keep our local congregation, no matter how big or how small, we have to keep them informed as to what's going on globally in missions. How do we do that? Well, I believe as a pastor, you have to put as many newsletters and asking your missionaries to maybe do some kind of a a video greeting and tell them what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times right now, you know, your missions organizations are offering these kinds of things that we can put before our congregation, keep them informed as to what's going on, not just around the world, but we have to also keep them informed as to what's going on right at our back door and give them ideas how to get involved. And you mentioned. You know the tension of a pastor. How do I, I I get my congregation involved? I think it has to start locally, and as a pastor, and and I'm I am a big proponent of this. And I, I, I Ephesians chapter four verse twelve says that our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Somehow we, we have. We have put this idea in our head that the pastor's job is just to get behind a pulpit and preach three times a week, and it's sad. This is a sad state of affairs that we have found ourselves in. You know, we have set up the pastor. I say this in my classroom. I'm going to go ahead and say it right here on this podcast, and I might get myself in trouble, but that's all right. I think I'm already there. So
0: come on, bring it on.
1: We have set the pastor up in the role of the pope, you know. So it's the pastor that has to baptize. It's the pastor that has to give communion. It's the pastor that has to do everything. This isn't scriptural. It's very, very clear. A predominant doctrine, and this is a Wesleyan doctrine, is the, the priesthood of all believers. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Um, that should show forth the praises of him that have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now are the people of God. You who once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who's he talking to? Pastors? Absolutely, positively not. This is us as the people of God within the congregation. Pastors have to give up the papal thought that I am the pope behind the pulpit and the only one that can do anything in this church. And we have to start training the saints for the work of the ministry, as Paul has instructed us, he even commanded us to do. And I am convinced there's a whole lot of churches out there with probably 10, 15, 20 people that could be pastoring the church. And yet, what do we do? Call somebody else in to pastor it. Why? Oh, we pay him. That's his job. We've gotten into this mentality of paid pastoralship. And I'm not against paying a pastor. That's that's not what I'm talking about. But somewhere we have to shift to where the people sitting in the pews, we the people of God, are going forth to obey the Great Commission.
0: Boy, that is right on. And I think there's a lot we could dig in there and ask questions about. But one thing I want to lean into here is let's just take some of these guys that are struggling. You've got a pastor who is doing his best. He gets the burden. He gets it. He wants to see ministry focus. He starts a door-knocking campaign, and it doesn't go anywhere. He starts a bus ministry campaign It goes on for weeks with, with minimal success, and he's tried to set up a kids program, and a lot of work goes into this, and not very much, maybe no fruit. So talk to us a little bit about some of these issues where people have tried and they're just frustrated because it's not happening.
1: Sure, absolutely. I think, number one, we have gotten into a mentality that every evangelism strategy, is what I like to call them, is going to work at every place, and that's not true in other words not every church is a bus ministry church not every church is a junior church ministry type church and i think we have to find the niche of the church and a part of that is number 1 what is the burden of the church what is what you know what kind of people do we have so we have to find the spiritual gifts of the people within that church and sometimes the issue here is that we're trying to make elephants climb trees Elephants don't climb trees, monkeys do. And so we're back to this issue. Can we make an elephant climb a tree? No, but we have to speak to the giftings of the Holy Spirit to our congregants. And of course, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter four and verse 12, when he's saying equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is in the context of spiritual gifts. And so we have to find the spiritual gifts of our people and then Take them, mentor them, train them, equip them to do the things that God has gifted them to do and help them to learn what those things are and then create entry strategies or evangelism strategies off of those giftings there again, each area is different. Some areas work better on certain things, and and certain pastors are gifted in certain areas that other pastors are not. We have to take our giftings and use them for the kingdom. So when I look at entry strategies, I think that's the problem. I love talking with young people. I Obviously, I, I interact with them all the time. Young people are visionaries, I love sitting down and brainstorming with them. What are some good entry strategies? And we begin to talk about things such as coffee ministry on the street, a coffee stand that I'm going to take out onto the street and evangelize with a coffee stand. Well, what a fabulous idea, depending upon where you're at. What about burrito ministry, where we make breakfast burritos and we go hand them out door to door? It's a fabulous ministry. I've done it cookie ministry, bread ministry, where we're handing free things out to people. And a lot of our smaller churches have a lot of older women in them. And this is a, a place where I think they can begin to get involved. Can you make bread? Can you make breakfast burritos? Can you make cookies? Whatever. You know, we're going to take this. We're going to take some of the young people. The older people are going to help us make these things. And we're going to take the young people. We're going to train them how to use them. And I have found when I am on the street, whether in a park, at a door, no matter where I'm at, things go much better if I'm giving out something for free, whether that's a loaf of bread, a burrito, a a lunch, a a water, um, you name it, that gives me the upper hand that opens up so many doors. And the second time I come back around, they look at me and go, oh, yeah, you're the breakfast burrito guy. Come on in. Come on in. Hey, could I have a Bible study in your house? Yes. So I think we have to get creative. Do I have to have them coming to my church? Building. Is that my entry strategy? That I just go to a door and invite them to church? Why would people of the world that don't worship your God want to come and worship your God in your church? And the illustration I love to give is what if a, a Hindu man would come up to our holiness people or Christian people anywhere and invite them to the Hindu temple to worship? We'd look at him and go, "You're crazy. No, I don't worship your God. And yet that's exactly what we're doing, and we expect sinners to not be sinners. I think the entry strategy probably that we need is making sure that our evangelism isn't inviting to my church, but is actually giving them the gospel, the transforming gospel of Jesus. I hate inviting people to church strategy, and here's why I don't like it. I never know when I'm going to see these people ever again. Or if I'm going to see them, I want to make sure that no matter what I'm doing, I'm giving them the gospel. Even if I'm handing them a bottle of water, along with handing them a bottle of water, I'm sharing the gospel.
0: Okay, you made a great point about something I wanted to dig deeper into. And so I'm going to step in a little bit deeper now. You mentioned how there are relationships that you develop with people apart from the church service. And I want to capitalize and accentuate this because this is really, really crucial. Listen to me, guys. Unbelievers will not come into your church until they know someone well who goes to your church. So just like you described, you're not going to go to a temple. Uh, You're not going to go to a mosque. Uh, You don't believe in it. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. You're not going to know what to do. All of those same emotions are going to happen on an unbeliever who's coming off the street. You think they might know the context because we live in a quote-unquote Christian society, but it's not really as Christian as it used to be. Now, how many people come into church and the first thing they hear is to leave your burdens at your altar? Well, we come in to get rid of our burdens. We don't come in to bear each other's burdens. Right.
1: And, then, and, and the question I ask is, so during the prayer request time, How many of those burdens do we bear for one another? Not nearly enough.
0: Definitely not.
1: And that's where when you're in a smaller group setting of five, six, eight, ten people, it's easier to kind of unbear your heart and go around the circle and pray individually for them. That's one example. The other example that I love to give is confess your faults. Of course, we're going to go into the actual word there, sins, faults. Anyways, how many times have you heard in your service of 150 or 300 people, people standing up, confessing their faults one to another, and really, as the pastor, do you want them doing that?
0: Boy, that gets awkward really quick.
1: And the answer is no. But in a smaller setting, absolutely. And this is where we can help one another, we can lift one another up, and we're actually bearing one another's burdens and doing that, and we're loving one another. Loving our neighbor as ourself and doing that, but that's not happening in, in a larger setting. And I'm not against large churches, but the fact is, in that setting alone, we're not fulfilling those one-another commands.
0: This has been fantastic, and I want to pick up on some stuff that we've talked about. You've heard a lot of ministry ideas, ministry objectives, and there are going to be some people that are listening, and they want to they want to do some of this and think, maybe I should start this. But the end goal that they're still thinking about is a packed church on a Sunday morning. And I want to challenge you that the end goal has got to be way bigger than a Sunday morning service. The end goal, according to Scripture, is discipleship in community. Discipleship in community. When you look at that and let the Scripture form your vision, then you're looking at something that is way bigger, much more than the Sunday service or the Sunday night or the Wednesday night or the Sunday school and everything put together could be. You need that community to help develop these guys when they're asking real questions. Uh, You know, we're talking about confessing your sins one to another. Well, if you're going to take discipleship seriously, you're really going to have a mess on your hands when you start listening to all of these sins. They're going to be dealing with stuff like like bitterness, like unforgiveness, like gossip, and boy, you're going to get to some messy issues like lust and pornography. And it's it's not going to be appropriate to deal with this in a Sunday morning service. But when you have that discipleship, one-on-one community time, you can start making an impact. Other issues that would be just as practical, though maybe not as, as messy, would be issues like like budgeting and, and working through the specifics of finding God's will for your life. That really needs that personal development with a disciple maker, a mentor, who is willing to walk the journey with them. Now, last time, we were talking about investing people into ministry pretty early on. And I want to come back to that, because we're talking about equipping people for ministry with the gifts that you have. And so with that, looking at outreach, how do you train new believers to become soul winners?
1: Well, number one, I think you have to start right away. And you have to model soul winning to them. When I say start right away, literally the the day that they get saved, when they get up from the altar, the first time that I'm I'm kind of talking with them, I like to take a piece of paper and write down five or ten names of people that they know, friends of theirs, family of theirs that are not saved, and then... I like to, to have them write down what my life was before I met Christ and what my life is like now. What has Jesus done for me? And then they practice that with me. So they go over that. It doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be real, you know, it doesn't have to sound like they have some PhD or something, but um, it's their testimony. And then I challenge them, go out, And you're going to share what you just shared with me this week with those people on your list. And next week, when I get with you, I'm going to ask you if you did it.
0: Now, I want to jump in here. There are three elements that I heard are really basic, and I want to make sure people capture these. Number one, who do you know that needs to hear this? Number two is, what do they need to hear? And that's a very simple testimony. Number three You've got to hold them accountable. Now, this doesn't have to be the pastor. It could be whoever brought them to church. And in fact, if the layman is doing it, that's probably even better. But here we go. We've got three elements. You've got to find the community who's in that relational network. You've got to help them craft their story. And their story is great as it is. And number three, you've got to give accountability. Keep going.
1: And what I have found is the best soul winners are the brand new converts. They are absolutely the best soul winners. They're the best at this. They're actually fabulous at discipling others. Why? Because they're gung-ho over it. You know, we haven't let them kind of warm over and become skeletons in a pew like most of the rest of the church people have been sitting there 30, 40, 50 years And they have kind of warmed over and no longer have the vim and vigor and vision that they used to have. You know, when you're newly saved and God has really radically changed you and done something for you, you want to share about it. And that's how it's been almost with every new convert that I've ever had. And so that is the very first thing that I do. I love taking new converts with me when I go out to do soul winning. Whatever my evangelism strategy, my entry strategy, if I'm doing burrito ministry, if I'm handing out waters at a festival, if I'm, I don't know, if I'm handing out cookies door to door, whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm going to bring new converts with me. And they are going to be with me, watching me do it. And then I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, just so you know, I'm doing it one more time. And then you're at it. And they go, what, me? Yeah, absolutely. You already have your testimony. You're going to knock on the door and you're going to say, hello, my name is Tom. And this was my life before Christ. This is what he did for me. And he can do the same thing for you. And you hand him a thing of cookies. It's easy. And next thing you know, I have two or three brand new converts that are out with me doing this and Once they do it several times, then I let them go on their own. I'm there, I'm near them, maybe a street from them, I'm across the street doing it, and they're on the other side, and they're a little timid and shy at doing this, and then they go down a street or two, a block or two, and they come back and they go, wow, I actually did it. Yeah, you did. You're going to do it again. And we keep doing this. We make an environment of harvest, an environment of Fishing. And I think a whole lot of congregations are fishing in their bathtub and not fishing in the ocean. We need to get fishing where there are actual fish ready to be caught. And if we're fishing where there are fish, I guarantee you we're gonna catch some. And these new converts, when they when I start teaching them to fish, then I watch them fish, next thing you know, they're fishing on their own. And next thing they're coming to me in a time where I meet with them, they go, you know what? I was just out on the street this morning. And I go, what? I didn't plan that. I don't say that because that's exciting. That's multiplication. That is exactly what we want. And so then next thing you know, they come back and they say, so-and-so that was on my list, they just got saved yesterday at my couch. Come on. Wow.
0: Praise God.
1: What happens? Typically, they're like, so are you going to come and disciple them? And what's my answer? No. You are. All of them look at me and go, I'm not sure I can do that. Yes, you can do this. This is what this is all about. This is multiplication, and this is what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where I am going to tell you, Timothy, and you are going to teach faithful men who will teach others also. There's a four-generation effect of discipleship going on in that verse. And so when I have spiritual children, that's the Apostle Paul to Timothy, next thing you know, I have spiritual grandchildren. That's when my disciple comes back and goes, look, wow, yesterday so-and-so was at my house. They kneeled down at my couch and got saved. We went to my kitchen table and we started discipling them right away. I don't even know these people. That's spiritual children. And then they go, oh, by the way, a couple weeks later, they go, oh, by the way, Harry that was at my house, his brother just got saved, and he's discipling him. That's spiritual grandchildren. And then you have spiritual great-grandchildren. That's multiplication, and this is what is not happening in the majority of churches as we know it.
0: Now, friends, I hope you heard the important message of what was going on here, and especially pastors, laymen's also, but really pastors. Some of the most effective ministry that takes place when the pastor's not in front, but rather he's behind. And he's already demonstrated, but now he's delegated, deputizes, and that's part of discipleship. And so he's delegated that task. And he doesn't feel like he has to be the person who is in front orchestrating, making sure things happen, making sure that all the right doctrinal points are hit. The Holy Spirit is in charge. The Holy Spirit's excited about this. Uh, You keep pushing them forward. You keep praying for for them. You, You demonstrate what a godly life is like and then set them free. Release them. And it will be absolutely amazing what God can do. Now, all of this is a great idea. It sounds great. But we all know that life doesn't always just plug along automatically. There are going to be snags, disturbances, issues, roadblocks. And and sometimes there's going to be tragedies involved. And sometimes it's going to be something that is unseen. Unseen. So, Brother Mason, talk to us about some aspects of spiritual warfare from what you've seen in the United States as well as abroad.
1: Ultimately, when you begin to work in the work of the Lord, whether you are a pastor, whether you are a foreign worker in a foreign context, or whether you're a layman, we know that we have an enemy that is at work just as much as we are and sport, spiritual warfare is, is happening. So just as you bring that brand new convert, he stands up and you begin talking to him, getting him ready to go out, the enemy is working him over. And ultimately, you're not going to save everybody. You're not going to keep everybody. Unfortunately, I wish we could. But it, it, it's just not reality and uh, the enemy is working overtime. And I believe it goes back to our conversation on prayer, because the more people that we see come to Christ, we have to keep praying for them and praying for them and fasting for them. And and even when we do our best effort, you know, the enemy will get in at times. And the spiritual warfare aspect of this, there's several things that I like to teach my new convert, and I think it helps. And I'm going to go ahead and share this, and and I don't know. There may be people that don't agree with this, but I believe it's scriptural and it's biblical. And that is, and and I often ask my new converts, I ask my students, is Satan omniscient? And the answer is no, he is not. But Satan battles us so often and extremely battles new converts in the area of the mind. And what I have found is Satan loves to bring thoughts in one side of the head. Come over to the other ear and look at them, and he's the accuser of the brethren and says, you just thought that. My answer to my new converts, I asked them a question. How did Satan know that you just thought that? Was that you that thought that, or was that him that put the thought there. And if he's not omniscient, he can't know that you thought it. Therefore, he had to put it there in order to know that it's there. That little bit of light is life-transforming. All of a sudden, I've, I've, I've watched groups of new converts look at me and go, wow, that is incredible. I never thought of that. And it is freeing to know Satan in the spiritual battle is working in that way, and he's a loser. He's a liar. He's a loser. He's a accuser of the brethren, so we have to be discipling, training our new converts in prayer, training them in how to fast. They need to be praying with us. They need to see us pray. They need to be with us If we're going to call a a night of prayer where we pray in the evening from 10 to whenever God releases you, your new converts need to be with you. And they need to be watching you. You need to be helping them. That's a part of the spiritual warfare. They need to begin to see and realize that prayer is a big aspect of victory. And so spiritual warfare is always going to have a place. It's always going to be active in ministry, whether it's here in a foreign context.
0: Man, that is really crucial. And this is very vital because we want our people to experience the life and the presence of God, because this is way more than a doctrinal statement or an ascent of, of mentality. We're looking for the presence of God to make the difference.
1: And this is this is where my brother, the you know, when we talk about discipleship, I'm a big fan of using curriculum. Okay. I use curriculum in a discipleship quote-unquote method, if you want to call it that. However, discipleship's not about a, a curriculum, and I want to make that very, very clear, because what is discipleship? It's teaching them, it's helping them to follow Jesus, just like you are. And so however you are following Jesus, you're helping your disciple, your new convert, to do the same thing. And so they should be watching you pray. They should be watching you. Bible study should be a part of that. But that whole coming up along beside of them, we should be eating meals together. We should be, I love going and meeting with my new converts at their work, going out to their work, sometimes not even telling them that I'm going, just showing up at their work. And Oh, wow, you just showed up. Yeah, I'm here. Why? Because we serve Jesus in the workplace, too and just coming up alongside of them and that they know you are there to support them, help them, lift them up, encourage them, pray with them, study with them. And so discipleship isn't just some kind of curriculum, but it is helping them serve and follow Jesus.
0: Man, I hope you picked up on this. There are a lot of people that are looking for the right answer, the right path, the right curriculum. And the answer is there could be a number of them. But the real answer is the path that you demonstrate. If you're walking the right path, it's good for others to to follow you in that and for you guys to walk this path uh, together. Now, when you talk about this idea of faith and a life-to-life transformation, well, people can kind of get kind of touchy and maybe a little bit insecure about that. Now, if you're one of those people and you're not comfortable having people get that close to your spiritual vitality, well, well, maybe, maybe you just need to man up and get serious about following Jesus so you have something that's worth following. Now, this has been a lot of fun, and I think we have nailed it today in the last episode on and equipping the local church for a global impact. Now, this really does start living intentionally where you are, and along with that, keeping a a perspective on the global gospel. Now, as we get ready to wrap this up, I'd like you to, to spend one more time telling us what is the purpose of the Christian life on earth, and how do you fulfill that? Go ahead and send us off.
1: All right. When I think of this question, my mind goes to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what is the main purpose of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? And I agree with that, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. However, I believe I would add to that, to glorify God and to bring others into worship of him. I believe it was John Piper, and I'm not a big fan of John Piper necessarily, but he has had a lot of good things to say. And he said, one day missions is going to end, but worship of God is going to go on forever and ever Therefore, what's the greatest thing that man can do on earth? The greatest way, I believe, that we can worship God is to bring others into worship of Him also. And so when we are glorifying God through our life, and then we're going to be bringing others to worship Him and teaching others how to worship God and teaching others how to worship Bring others into worship Him and them teaching others how to worship God and them teaching others how to bring others into worship of God. I believe that is the sole purpose of man. And I believe that's why we're here on earth. One day, earth is going to be over. One day, missions is going to be over. But for the endless ages of eternity, John saw. 10,000 times 10,000 of every kindred and tongue and tribe and language gathered around the throne worshiping God, glorifying Him, the one that was slain to receive power and glory and honor and riches and blessing. And that's going to go on for the for all of eternity. And what is the greatest thing that we can do? Add worshipers around the throne.
0: Well, that is my hearts cry in prayer. Come on, church, let's do it. Let's look for worshipers to gather around the throne and give glory to God. This is way more than a service in a church. While we're doing this, while we are making disciples, it really does change and transform a culture. And so, Lives are changed in the the microscopic scale, but as those lives are changed, it starts to transform the culture in a macroscopic scale. And so you come from a place that, has bars on every window, a place that is rife with bribery and extortion and abortion and human trafficking and all of the guilt and the mess and the corruption that sin has caused. And when they encounter the presence of the living God, then that transformation starts in their hearts and it confronts the darkness. It brings light to the hopeless. And it starts to change society so that there is a kingdom of God on earth. Boy, that's exciting. That's where the church informs and influences society. It is vitally important that we fulfill our mandate as believers to make disciples of the nations. Well, Brother Mason, I am so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us. I am really looking forward to more opportunities in the future where we can do this again and encourage our brothers and sisters to equip their local church and make a global impact. Thanks again. We really appreciate you being with us.
1: Thank you, Rob Tom.
0: Well, that'll be a wrap for today. Join us again next time for the EFM podcast. We really appreciate you listening, subscribing, and sharing, and carrying these conversations forward to help your church make the impact that can reach the world.